As I was uh, preparing this week, I came across uh, one writer who, in discussing the passage for us this morning, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, he bemoaned the fact that teaching this passage would require him to talk about money and giving, his least favorite things to talk about from the pulpit at least. One of the reasons he hates talking about money as he describes it is because he's very much afraid that the day that he talks about it will be the day that one or more or several people will be visiting the church for the first time and will have one of their greatest stereotypes about the church confirmed for them. And that is that the church in general and preachers in particular are only interested in money. Well, I can certainly understand where that writer is coming from, and I share some of his concerns. And so on the off chance that some of you are here for the first time, and I know for a fact some of you are, some many came for the baptism this morning. We're glad you're here with us. But if you're here for the first time, uh, let me just assure you, we don't talk about money all the time here. In fact, we hardly ever talk about it. Not because we're ashamed of it or because it isn't worth talking about, but because of the approach that we take to teaching the Bible here, which is to systematically work our way through books of the Bible. Now, there's a lot that can be said about that approach, but for the purposes of this discussion, let me just say this. Since we believe firmly that God authored the entire Bible, then we believe every part of it matters. He didn't give us anything we didn't need or anything that he didn't want us to hear or think about. And so that means we should endeavor to teach the whole counsel of God. And by doing that, we will ensure, among other things, that we will, first of all, think about all the things that God wants us to think about. And secondly, we'll think about them as often as he wants us to think about them with the right proportion and emphasis. And so with that perspective in mind, the reason we haven't talked a lot about money and giving here is because, simply put, the books of the Bible that we've looked at thus far have not talked a great deal about it. But whenever they have, we haven't hesitated. So it's the case again with this morning's message. We've landed on a chapter or two that have a good bit to say about money and giving, so now we're going to talk about those things. But before we do, let's recall how we got here. Throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul has been describing and defending various aspects of his life and ministry. And he's done this because he's been attacked by some unsavory characters that came into the Corinthian church after he moved on, promoting some very different perspectives, steadily undermining Paul's work, and influencing a number of people to begin questioning their founding apostle. Well, after taking really the first third of the letter to defend himself against these kind of things, Paul begins to emerge from that rather single-minded pursuit to continue. He's going to continue that, but alongside all of that, and on the basis of that, he's going to assert himself once again, uh, his rightful authority as an apostle. And he does this in two main ways in this letter. He does it firstly by making an extended appeal to the Corinthians to abandon their allegiance to these false teachers and to renew their trust in and commitment to him. That's what we've been looking at in our most recent studies of this book. Paul warns him in 5.21 to 6.13 to be careful and to give heed to what he's saying, lest they be shown to have received the grace of God in vain. 
He then goes on to warn them about the danger of continuing in their foolish bond with the false teachers by invoking the principle of not being unequally yoked in 6.14 to 7.4. He then takes them back in 7.5 to 16 to a previous occasion when he had rebuked the Corinthians on some things and on which occasion they had responded well and indeed went out of their way to show their continued love and support for Paul. All of these things Paul has done with the one goal of winning them back, of getting them, to use his own words, to make room in their hearts again for him. Well, as a second reassertion of his apostolic authority, and yet also as part of this appeal for them to renew their loyalty, Paul now turns to the matter of this collection of funds for the Christians in Jerusalem. And while at first glance this might seem to be another complete shift in subject matter, in actual fact, it's very much a part of what we've seen so far. In simple terms, Paul is urging the the Corinthians to fulfill their obligations with regard to this promised collection for the Jerusalem church for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is to test by their response whether they had taken to heart the appeal that he's made to return to him and recognize again his authority. This is going to be a test. Paul would know from how they responded what their intentions toward him were going to be. Now, much more could be said, but that's going to have to suffice as our introduction. We've got too much ground to cover. Before we go any further then, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you again for this privilege of being your people. Thank you for being the kind of God you are, loving, faithful, wise. Thank you in particular for the understanding way in which you deal with us as your people, including your decision and willingness to reveal something of yourself and your purposes to us through the medium of the written word. Accordingly, please help us to receive these words now in a gracious manner and with the respect that is due them. And please work through them to show us more and more about yourself, to increase our love for you and our desire to live in ways that honor you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we've seen a little bit uh, here about the passage before us in terms of its literary context. But let's add to that and take a few more moments to put this whole collection of money business into some kind of historical perspective. For starters, you need to think about the whole reason why a collection is being taken up for Christians in Jerusalem in the first place. Simply put, the reason they're taking up this collection, the reason it's become a necessity, is because of the gospel. As a result of the preaching of the gospel, many thousands of people had virtually overnight in Jerusalem become Christians. Unfortunately for most of them, this move proved to be a costly one. One writer describes the effect in this way. Coming as they did from a Jewish background of exclusivism, it needs no demonstration that they must have become, in consequence of their conversion, the victims of social and economic ostracism, ecclesiastical excommunication, and national disinheritance. Their business enterprises must, in most cases, have collapsed in ruins and family bonds been heartbreakingly severed. 
This is the background to the accounts that we read early on in the book of Acts, for example, where Christians came together to share their possessions with one another. It wasn't because people just woke up one day and said, hey, we're Christians now, let's share everything we have. They were willing to share, to be sure, but the catalyst that brought that about, at least initially, was not a sudden rush of goodwill or Christian communism or whatever you want to call it, but instead it was the extreme poverty in which the Jerusalem believers suddenly found themselves. They shared everything because they didn't have any choice. They needed each other. This is the same reality that led ultimately to the setting aside of Stephen and six others in Acts 6 to organize the church's mercy ministry, which overnight had become a huge logistical problem. We see this issue surface later on in the events of Acts 15 at the first church council. When Paul reports in his recollection of that meeting in Galatians 2.10, he says that when he and Barnabas were commissioned to go to the Gentiles, they were instructed, among other things, to remember the poor, referring no doubt to the ongoing struggles amongst the Jerusalem Christians. We then read about Paul's efforts to act on this commission to remember the poor in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 16 where Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. What Paul is talking about there, 1 Corinthians 16, is the collection that's in view here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And those are some of the historical circumstances that lie behind it. Now, knowing some of those things is helpful, I think, but it doesn't fully answer the why this matter seems to be so important to Paul. Important enough for him to write two full chapters on this subject. Why is it so important? And I think there's several reasons why. Firstly, it's important because it was something that got started but then never got finished. Somewhere along the way, the project stalled out. Now, commentators have offered several reasons why that might be the case, the most likely of which seems to me to be the fact that the false teachers, in the process of casting doubt on Paul's credibility, have probably insinuated that his motives in this area of money and finance were not pure, as Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians 12, 17 seem to suggest. In other words, some people were saying or suggesting that Paul was pocketing the money and that his insistence on not receiving any support from them for ministry was just a smokescreen designed to hide this fact. The real truth very likely was just the opposite. The false teachers were discouraging the collection of funds for the Jerusalem church in order that the monies would stay local and thus be used to benefit themselves. At any rate, and despite the potential ways in which Paul's urging the completion of this collection might be used against him, he still wanted the Corinthians to make good on their promise and finish what they started. Another reason this was important to Paul is because, as we've already discussed, it was a way for Paul to see and for the Corinthians to show that they truly had responded to his strong emotional appeal for them to renew their loyalty to him. It would show that they were no longer allowing themselves to be adversely influenced by the false teachers amongst them. 
But beyond those sort of pragmatic reasons for wanting the job finished, there were other more positive and fundamental reasons why Paul regarded this as an important thing. For one thing, Paul seems to have truly felt that he and indeed the entire Gentile church uh, was somehow indebted to the Jerusalem church. As one writer summarizes it, the logic of the situation is seen by Paul to reside in the fact that the church at Jerusalem is the mother church of Christendom. It's from her that the message of the gospel has radiated out to the Gentile world, bringing eternal and spiritual blessings. And in this sense, the Gentile Christians are debtors to the believers in Jerusalem. For, explains Paul, he talks about this in Romans 15, he says, if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, meaning uh, the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, then they, they owe it to them, the Jewish church, to minister to them in carnal things, in material things. Related to that reality is an additional burden that Paul felt and which he committed his whole life to, and that was to show how the gospel had broken down the wall of partition, as he puts it, between Jews and Gentiles, to show that the ground was level at the foot of the cross. The generous support of the Jerusalem church by churches that were overwhelmingly Gentile in makeup would be a tangible expression of that truth. But even more fundamental than all that, Paul saw this collection as an opportunity for the Corinthians to demonstrate their love for God by loving in real sacrificial ways these brothers and sisters for whom God sent his son to die. So for those reasons, and I'm sure more, this matter of taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem was a big deal to Paul, and as he saw it, ought to be an equally big deal for the Corinthians. And so with that admittedly extensive background in place, we are now quite literally going to race through the rest of the material of this chapter, looking over Paul's shoulder, learning from what he has to say to the Corinthians on this deeply important subject. Let me just read the first nine verses. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he has had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul, in urging uh, the completion of this collection, he offers two primary motivations for them. The first one he offers is the example of the Macedonian churches, which would be the churches in places like Philippi and Thessalonica. 
Paul says a number of things about these churches and their great generosity, which are worth highlighting, if only briefly. He says, first of all, that they gave in the midst of extreme poverty and in great affliction. They gave in the middle of all that. In other words, in circumstances that would be used by most people as an explanation for why they don't give, the Macedonians gave. And they gave generously. Not only that, Paul says they gave out of an abundance of joy. They weren't grumbling about it. They weren't begrudgingly doing it. They were glad to do it. They were thrilled to have the opportunity. In addition, Paul goes on to say that they gave according to their means, which means they gave in proportion to what they had. In other words, the point is not that, any of them, that what any of them gave was necessarily a huge sum of money in itself. I mean, they were in extreme poverty, right? But it was a lot in proportion to what they had. It's like the widow described in the Gospels who gave roughly a 64th of a day's wages but who, relatively speaking, gave more generously than those whose gift, at face value at least, was much larger. You know, a person making $50,000 a year might give $100 to a cause. Bill Gates might give $10,000 to the same, but in the calculus of heaven, $100 is actually more meaningful because at the end of the day, generosity is not a function of how much is given. It's a function of how much is sacrificed. But the Macedonians did more than just to give according to their means. They gave beyond their means. In other words, they gave in ways that in the view of some people might have seemed crazy, even irresponsible. One writer describes it this way. It's not that they gave more than they had, that would not be possible, but they gave more than anyone might have reasonably expected. People can give generously, and still set aside money for obligations and prepare for future unexpected expenses and troubles that might arise, and that's fine. The Macedonians, in effect, what they did, though, is they raided those funds that might have been set aside for just such things as good sense and wise planning and preparing for the unforeseen. They sacrificed things that rendered them vulnerable, that exposed them to great personal risk. And then, as if that's not enough to blow you away, Paul adds two more things about their giving. He says, firstly, that they gave of their own accord. They did it because they wanted to, not because they had to, not because they were coerced. In fact, Paul says they begged. They begged for the privilege of giving, which most likely means that they must have been advised by somebody that they really didn't have to give or that their circumstances made it entirely understandable for them not to give. But the Macedonians would have none of that. Please let us give you something, Paul. We want to help. We are begging you, please let us help. Unbelievable. The other thing that Paul says, curiously, is that they gave in an unexpected way. Namely, they gave to the Lord first. And to Paul and his colleagues second. And what Paul means, I think, is that they gave with a mature understanding and out of a deep sense of gratitude to God. Right? It's not that they didn't feel compassion for the people in Jerusalem. I'm sure they did. But even more compelling for them than their compassion was their simple passion, their simple understanding and appreciation 
of the gracious thing that the Lord Jesus had done for them. As one writer puts it, generosity to others is the embodiment of Christ's incarnation. That is Paul's point in verse 9. Someone becoming poor for others is how our salvation happened. It was through Christ's self-giving that we come to live forever. No real Christian then can possibly not want that same self-giving to be a characteristic feature of his life. Whether or not we would do it for the sake of some other human being, we must do it for the Lord Jesus himself. It is the most sincere, the most weighty way of all for a Christian to say, I get it. I get what you did for me. I understand what it took. I see how wonderful that self-giving was, how beautiful, how good, how right. And while I can save no one by my self-giving as you save me, I can tell the world how much yours means to me by trying to imitate it in my life. In short, the Macedonians had their heads on straight about this whole matter of giving. They got it. Their giving was to the Lord first. And if you want to know how important it is and how hard it is to do that sometimes, to keep that sequence right, just ask your deacons about how they have to wrestle with their own hearts on this very issue. Because when you are in the business of serving others for Christ's sake, you will find yourself dealing with people who are ungrateful, who are selfish, whose whole attitude drives you crazy, and forces you to go back to the fundamentals, back to where the Macedonians were, and remember that your giving and your service and your sacrifice is for the Lord first. Without that perspective, no mercy ministry can or will survive for very long. Compassion for others will only carry you so far. The only fuel that can go the distance is passion for the Lord Jesus. And so Paul holds up these two primary sources of motivation before the Corinthians in order to encourage them to complete the collection they had started. He uses the example of fellow believers in Macedonia and he offers the supreme example of the Lord Jesus who is the paradigm of all self-sacrificial giving and who is the ultimate motivation behind what the Macedonians had done. And please notice that Paul does not order them to finish this project. He might rightly have been able to do so as an apostle, but he clearly doesn't do it. He doesn't badger them or guilt them. Notably, he doesn't even appeal to any kind of tithing principle. Instead, he offers an invitation. Affectionate diplomacy, as one writer puts it. He seeks to entice the Corinthians and move them by the example of Christ as well as to the example of others who, in fact, were worse off than they were. The Corinthians, as Paul notes, were indeed a gifted bunch of people in many ways. In fact, they were so gifted that they had a tendency to become boastful and proud, as is seen in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. They excelled in so many ways, but Paul wants them to excel in this matter, too. In their generosity, in their sacrifice, in their demonstrated love and gratitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, after giving them two primary motivations and, and uh, for continuing in this work of taking up a collection, he goes on to give them some secondary motivation. 
And in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul says that their completing this task of collecting an offering for the Jerusalem church benefits them in at least two, two ways. Firstly, it benefits them because it proves the genuineness of their professed desire to help out. In other words, until their pledge had been acted on, it was just words. It's just a show of concern and support that had yet to be backed up by any real action. And the issue here, as Paul indicates, is, again, not the amount of money they had promised. In a sense, that was immaterial. What mattered more to Paul was the demonstrated readiness, the enacted readiness to help their brothers and sisters. The other way that that finishing this project benefited them was that it set up a reciprocity. As Paul explains, the Corinthians aren't being asked to help out in order that others can get a free pass or live in ease at their expense. It's not why he's asking. It's just simple economics. It's about fairness. The Corinthians are being asked to help out because it's their turn. In the providence of God, they were in a position to be able to help out their brothers and sisters, so they should. That in itself is enough to be sure, but beyond that, the reality is that their doing so sets up a kind of reciprocity whereby one day the tables may be turned and it will be the Corinthian church that is in need of help. And at that time, it may well be that the Jerusalem church or some other church they'd helped would return the favor. In short, their response now was an eminently practical thing to do. And at the end of the day, it maybe is the most basic, basic and reliable form of social security one can invest in. Well, after supplying both primary and secondary sorts of motivation for completing the Jerusalem collection, Paul goes on to describe the very careful manner in which he's going about this whole thing and some of the precautions he's taken to make sure that he doesn't create a situation that would only encourage his opponents to make more false accusations than they had already made about him and his integrity. But thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that's being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. 
And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for your brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. You know, while Paul cannot control what others say or think about him, he can try his best to do things in a way that makes it hard for people to malign him. Paul takes several steps in that area. First of all, notice this money isn't for Paul or his ministry. It's money collected by one church for the benefit of another church. Secondly, the person who's overseeing this project is not Paul, but Titus, who's his faithful companion and worker. And Titus, as Paul explains, was involved in this thing, not just because Paul asked him to, but because he wanted to be. So he's not just doing this because he's one of Paul's boys. He wants to do this. He has a deep love for the Corinthian believers, as difficult as they prove to be at times. Thirdly, along with Titus, Paul is sending two other people who are not named, but who both have a reputation that precedes them. In other words, these are people who have a good track record, who are known as men of impeccable credentials, as one commentator puts it. So they were respected by many people outside of Corinth, even if, as it appears, they were not all that well known to the Corinthians themselves. And so, again, while Paul uh, knew his own heart and his motives were right in this matter, in the Lord's eyes, he also knew that he needed to be concerned for the appearance of things and for not doing anything in a way that would unnecessarily create a doubt or a question of doubt in people's minds or make him more vulnerable than he already was to the criticism of his opponents. At the end of the day, then, this seemingly mundane matter of taking up a collection for the Jerusalem church turns out to be quite significant in its implications for both its original readers and for God's people in every age as it gives us some profound principles that we would do well to take to heart when it comes to this whole subject of Christian giving, which, as we've seen this morning, is characterized by the fact that it is a consequence of God's grace in the Lord Jesus, It is gratitude-driven. It is not controlled or determined by external circumstances. It is internally compelled, not externally coerced. And it is generous, proportional, sacrificial, and sometimes just plain risky. Let's pray. Father, like the Macedonians, help us to be so taken with an appreciation, a growing appreciation, I should say, of what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. Cause us to be so taken by that, that it affects the way we do everything including the way we respond 
to the opportunities that you bring to us to show by our willingness to sacrifice for others that we do get it. Father, make us those kind of people. Bring about those kind of results as only you can. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward. We'll collect that at this time.